0: Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners, I'm William, and we're back with another uh, episode of World of Wargaming. Today, we have with us Doc Cummins and Joseph Miranda here to talk about their uh, their Wargaming company and just Wargaming in general. Uh, general. So, hello, gentlemen, how are you? Good. Very good. All right, so starting off with uh, Doc, uh, do you mind just giving me uh, some background information uh, who you are and how did you become interested in Wargaming and uh, where did it take you?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Doc. Uh, I think my background in wargaming uh, started uh, pretty early. Uh, I was playing a lot of board games in our family uh, in the 1960s, and uh, my next older brother brought home a wargame from college, and that piqued my interest both uh, board game-wise and history-wise and kind of took off from there. Uh, So... Uh, in uh, college, I ended up uh, in uh, clinical psychology and joined uh, the Army through uh, the Walter Reed internship program and ended up as a division psychologist for the 7th Infantry during the Central American uh, late 80s period and uh, followed that up with some reserve time uh, working with stress control companies and training them how to to deal with battle fatigue. Uh after that, uh, my my interest in wargaming kind of took over. Uh, so, in addition to my private practice, I started a wargame company, uh, Decision Games, and uh, that's that's where Joseph joined in. So, I'll turn it over to him.
2: Hi, I'm Joseph Miranda, and I got interested in wargaming back when I was in high school. When I went into a hobby shop, and there were these really oddly shaped boxes from some company called Avalon Hill. I opened up one of them, and it was like, there's an entire world in there. And so I got interested in wargaming. Uh, I later on uh, joined the Army. I served as a psychological warfare officer. And after I got out, I complained to the former owner of uh, Strategy and Tactics magazine. And I said, <laughs> I don't like what what your games because I don't think they really simulate very much. They said, well, if you're so smart, why don't you design one for me? So I designed a game on Afghanistan, and they eventually published it. And that that began my um, my march to to war game design. So um, that's where I'm at today. And I've also so, I've also done um, uh, contract work for various uh, defense contractors in the
0: distant past. So what specifically uh, did they? Were was there? Were those wargamings not doing well that you wanted to improve upon? Well, I thought they really weren't.
2: Uh, I this way: I thought they were adequate for the 60s and 70s. But for the 1980s, I felt there was a wider range of things like psychological warfare, Uh, today would be called information operations, the non-material factors. So I felt they all had to be in the game, so I I, uh, put them in there. And uh, in the Afghanistan game, I did it through markers, which represent various um, political and military factions. So the game is not only a military game, but it's also sort of a political game.
0: Excellent. So this one's uh, this next question is geared towards both of you. So just can you give our audience a little information about decision games, the types of games you make, this, this, um, the array of scenarios that might be, and then how uh, decision games is different from either previous war games or competitive, uh, competitive war gaming.
1: Sure. So we took over Strategy and Tactics magazine in 1991. So we've been at it for 30 years. And we've published over 200 uh, issues of strategy and tactics in that period of time, in addition to about 200 other games uh, along the way. Uh, what differs, different, differentiates us from what came before is the, the Dunnegan, uh, what I call the DuPoy uh, uh model of looking at war games as a quantitative study. Uh, to reduce everything to numbers uh, and present that in uh, a game or game simulation. Uh, I think since we took over uh, Joseph's focus on qualitative factors, uh, my interest in especially uh, how uh, individual units perform, uh, what defines an elite uh, force versus a scratch force, and also uh, the interplay of ISR uh, in how uh, that affects operations and how can we simulate that better in the games we produce. So where we're at with strategy and tactics is that it's evolved over these past three decades. We've had quite the focus on not just telling the story of a battle or campaign, uh, but going a bit more in depth about how and why it occurred. So you know, how did that side that uh, was uh, inferior numerically manage to defeat the the numerically superior side? What was the trick or what was the the principle that they followed that allowed them uh, to overcome uh, the adversity or the the uh, disadvantages they had? And so that that's a lot of what the focus uh, has been in the games. And we've also evolved the magazine. So, originally, the magazine was a support product for the game. Uh, and even though this the whole idea of the hybrid of the magazine with a game, uh, which goes all the way back to 1969, Dunegan was the the creator of this first uh, concept, uh, is great. Uh, we saw the magazine as something could stand alone and be a vehicle for. Uh, enhancing and allowing people to improve their critical thinking and their decision making by understanding how did uh, these military operations evolve? How did the commanders make their decisions? Uh, How do those decisions turn out? What's kind of the after action of of, uh, each battle or campaign? We cover what are the lessons to be learned? And so we've kind of Uh, as more more than just strategy and tactics, but decision games as a a whole company, uh, evolved to where we have multiple game lines that kind of take uh, the military history enthusiast uh, on a path from uh, reading about uh, particular battles or campaigns to looking at them more in depth to having some very introductory level games. uh, And then the second, actually the magazine games are kind of the third step in this progression. Uh, and then on to even more intense uh, games and simulations uh, that, that get to the place where they have multiple maps and thousands of uh, playing pieces uh, and and are in-depth uh, simulations for teams. So that's, and that's kind of where we stand right now. We have five different lines of games. Uh, we have three different magazines that we are operating. Uh, in addition to S&T, we do World at War magazine, which is essentially S&T for World War II. And then we also have a, a quarterly magazine uh, that's also S&D uh, that does not have a game in it, but it goes more in depth. It really spends time focused on one topic and really trying to understand uh, the how and why of things that uh, are not normally covered in kind of popular military history magazines. So uh, in fact, Joseph did a, a wonderful in-depth survey of the, the Byzantium Empire here, uh, the last couple of issues. Uh, which is a topic Wargamers will generally not go to. It's not their go-to kind of topic, Uh, but he did a really masterful job of kind of giving everybody the overview of how that empire evolved, what the things they were facing from period to period. Uh, And it was just really a nice uh, summary that was not a multi-thousand page book or series uh, that, that really explored that topic and that, that, That's another way we go. That necessarily does not have a game necessarily connected with it. How about? about, Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Uh,
0: continue.
1: Yeah, no, I was going to say I think Joseph probably got some more insight since he's he came onto our organization very early on. While while I was still wrapping up my involvement in the military, uh, and we really kind of got involved in this whole thing very early on, uh, and you know, I I saw what he was doing uh, in the late 80s with his game design work uh, and really felt that that this was the kind of person who uh, stepped up and stood on the shoulders of what came before and said okay here's here's the path towards even better understanding. can you uh, uh, cue us in on, on those
0: then?
2: Sure. Well, one thing about uh, strategy and tactics in World at War is it allows us to publish games on a lot of topics that often have really off-the-wall designs that you might not necessarily see in a box. And uh, we have, uh, for example, a game coming up on uh, the German campaign in the uh, Baltic region during World War I in the last two years of the war, 1917 and 1918. And it's a very interesting design because you have amphibious operations, you have joint warfare, and you have a sort of a psychological warfare aspect to it. What makes the game interesting is that it's it's essentially you have a two-phase campaign. The first phase, the Germans in 1917 are trying to knock the Russians out of the war. But when they do that, the Bolshevik revolution occurs, and now they've got to fight a secondary campaign against the Bolsheviks, uh, both in the Baltic and then up in Finland. So a very, very, very different situation in which the player has to use all aspects of modern warfare to gain a victory, and it's one of those campaigns that's very, very rarely covered, but has a lot of lessons learned for you know the future.
1: So, talk. I was going to say, isn't it interesting that that we're talking about a topic where if you say World War One and amphibious operation, uh, if you get an answer, it's going to be Gallipoli and so here's a topic that i think even within military history enthusiasts and war gaming uh, that snt regularly goes to something that you haven't heard about before uh, and so i am always getting the feedback from our readership about how the snt uh magazine continually goes to to topics that they hadn't heard of before and yet uh, you know, this is an excellent topic for the Marine Corps in terms of here's joint operations. Uh, here's both the amphibious part as well as land uh, parts of operations that that I think would be of great interest to the the uh, Marine Corps.
2: You also have zeppelins. Zeppelins are yeah. always popular. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So you bring bring up a great case of like using uh, history to to help get your subs and reps in. How would your, how would you, I guess, do a complete study using your wargaming? Like, for instance, if you're trying to learn about a new topic, uh, would you like wargame at first, read, or how would, you, how, where does your wargames fit in the realm of using it as a teaching tool?
1: So I, I think a lot of times what happens is, is that it does start with reading, uh, and we're kind of geared that way that we anticipate that uh, our customers will pick up our magazine off the newsstand. And our mag- magazine is sold separately at Barnes & Noble and some other uh, bookstores and newsstands. And so that's where we tend to, to pick up our customers. They get interested in that. And so they either decide uh, from reading that lead article that goes with the game that, oh, I should pick up the game, uh, or they see some of the other ads that have some of the, m- the more introductory games and say, oh, this is something I'm interested in. And they'll start uh, from there. Uh, the other place that we pick up customers is at board game conventions. Uh, so not just uh, war game conventions, because that's really tends to be a smaller part of these larger uh, board game conventions. So almost always, I, I get some students, it seems, uh, high school, college level uh, that come and they see what we do and they're interested in the history component. Uh, and so we get them started on something interesting to them uh, and, and they pick up that game and, and pursue that. So uh, you know, for example, we have a little mini game on the Vikings. Well, Vikings was kind of a popular topic here in the last few years in uh, popular TV and uh, you know, series uh, programs, movies. And, and so that game was, was popular for a while. We were uh, selling that to, to people as a starting point uh, for getting involved in wargaming. And then those people would come back and say, hey, do you have a, something in a different topic that they were interested in? So that seemed to be a good starting point.
0: No, yeah, that's uh, I like how that works. So, how much does audience, uh, audience or player feedback uh, dictate uh, which uh, you know scenarios or historical options that you go with?
1: Oh my gosh, that that's like ninety percent. Uh, so, from the beginning for strategy and tactics, there was a feedback loop uh, where they would do a survey uh, in every issue about what should our next topic be, and there would be proposals uh, from designers uh you know outlining what the the game would be uh and then the the customer base or the subscriber base would uh vote or uh, re- rate those proposals and then uh, the company would always uh you know favor the ones that were highly rated that the the audience wanted to see so that's been something that that's carried through the entire 50 year history of st uh, and something that that, you know, we pride ourselves in. It's not something that any of the other companies do, uh, but we really strive to engage our audience and really understand uh, what they're looking for. And it's helped shape the products that we've uh, introduced over the, the past couple of decades.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned earlier that you have, uh, you said five uh, different lines or or series of games. Do you mind just like, explaining what uh, what each one is and how they differentiate from each other?
1: Sure. So so basically working from the least complex and detailed to the most is how it, it works. So at the lowest end, we have what we call our mini games. And these are, are small uh, Ziploc packaged games uh, that run between about $12 and $15, which is a crazy low point for a board game at this point, uh, price-wise. Uh, and the game itself is playable on like... Uh, well, I've got customers that even say, I've played this on an airline <laughs> uh, folding table, because uh, the, the map are, are basically 11 by 17, or uh, like a two-page spread. And there's about 40 pieces in the game, so it's not really much more than a chess uh, set of pieces. Uh, sometimes there's some cards, about four pages of rules, something you can generally uh, read in about 10 minutes or less and, and get into it. And then... That whole line is divided into basically three groups. And within each group, there's a common set of rules. So once you've played one game, there's another 10 games that you can play with that same basic set of rules. And so that's that's a great introduction level uh, for that. Then the next level up is our folio games, which happen to be about twice that size. So they're about uh, four panels or 17 by 22, about 100 pieces now. Uh, and again, there are system rules in, in some large groupings, so there's multiple games to play with one set of rules. Uh, and, and again, in, in both of those, there are topics that go all the way from uh, ancient times, uh, Caesar's War, Balisarius, uh all the, all the way up to some modern uh, topics like caisson. Uh, we had a, a, a drive on, or a, a, excuse me, a showdown uh, for the Indo-Pakistani War. Uh, so, so there's definitely a range, and of course, there's all the the common World War II and Civil War, and Napoleonic type topics in there. Uh, but it, but there's some things spread out all over there. So then, line number three is our magazine game. So that's kind of the middle uh, road. Uh, 60 page rules, about 10,000 words, something that can be read and digested in less than an hour. Now. Uh, uh, most of the games are standalone, but some are in series or the, the base rules repeat. Uh, but others uh, are kind of standalone. Uh, occasionally, we do uh, games that connect. So you actually can play a single game. Uh, but over time, you will get more maps and counters such that you can play a multi-map game with the same base rules. So that that's those. Line number four is is our common. Uh, box games, the kind of thing that you normally get from all the war game companies, uh, generally has about two of the full-size map sheets in it, uh, 16 to 32-page rule booklet, uh, usually like two, maybe three counter sheets, maybe a deck of cards. And, and that's kind of what, when we start talking about war games, that's usually what everybody thinks of as a war game. So, so there, there's where we're at. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to get somebody to jump in at that level whose past uh, you know, play has been uh, risk or chess. Uh, th- these games are way beyond the, the level of risk or chess. L- you know, risk and chess are down at that first and second level. So, so that's why we wanted to bring in some things that were at uh, lower complexity levels for a good uh, place to start. So then after line four, when we get to line five, we're talking about uh, games that have multi-maps, uh, oftentimes uh, as many as a 3,000 counters. Uh, they're often played by teams. Uh, these are the ones that we take to special war game conventions where uh, they usually last a week. Uh, many of the games that are played there, both ours and other companies, uh, you know take uh, several days to play. Uh, and there's just there's a lot of detail. often command structures are involved. and so so we have those kind of games or we have, uh, maybe smaller games, but they're much more intense. Maybe the the rules start to become more like field manuals, uh, and the detail is is getting to that kind of level.
0: Right. Thank you. Um, so, uh, uh, Joseph, I have a question for you. So, you mentioned you know, how you are uh, were instrumental in a in, in, in trying to uh, improve wargaming, you know, into more contemporary circumstances and bringing extra factors. How has since you uh, joined up with comments, How has uh, y- y'all's wargaming evolved uh, since then?
2: Well, we we continue to come up with systems for showing all aspects of modern modern warfare, uh, not just the kinetic, but also the you know the non-kinetic and everything else. Now, to to give you one example, we're working on a game right now called Red Dragon. Green Crescent. It's actually an upgrade of an older game we did, and it covers modern and near future conflict in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And one of the things I added in there was a set of cards which show the effects of supply chain disruptions and other logistical factors, plus uh, the impact on morale of loss of various critical um, objectives around the map. So this way, the players have to look at things from the perspective, not just of moving fleets around or uh, getting aircraft into position, but also holding critical areas that might not otherwise have strategic value, but they have immense political and economic value. So if you lose certain island chains, what happens is there's a chance there that your home front morale collapses, and there go your logistics. So... It's an easy way, cards are an easy way to integrate this all into play. You don't have to read extra rules because the rule is on the card. And for some reason, players like cards. They won't read rules books, but they will read cards. <laughs> you check this out. Go to a war game convention, put out a game box with some cards. Everybody starts fiddling through the cards, and it's like, oh wow, neat card. Especially if you have a, an illustration on it. So
0: that's pretty cool. So looking at like the the um you know, the current operating environment, a lot of Air Marines are looking forward and planning to, how do your uh, games incorporate, for instance, like information operations, which is like one of like, the big big uh, buzzwords going around the, the community these days?
2: Well, one of the things we do is we have markers represented in information warfare, and you can use them for various purposes. Uh, this goes back for a while back. We did a, a game on the um, Indo-Pakistani war years and years ago where there was an information warfare component. And you can use them for everything from doing intelligence operations to psychological warfare to demoralize the other side. So the idea by giving people pieces which represent it, you can think of it in the same terms as sort of a operational strategic asset like an airstrike. But instead, the strike is obviously being conducted by information operations.
1: So I would make the point that Joseph has incorporated this information warfare element into games – from all periods. And I think it's very helpful for war gamers to recognize that the idea of information warfare is not something new at all. Uh, So I see his stratagems and other uh, techniques he's used in ancient warfare uh, games that he's designed. And and I think that helps everybody see that there's a lot more going on uh, than just the chess moves on a battlefield. There, there's all the things that get you to that battlefield, and there's all the things that that continue the campaign afterwards.
2: Right. We we well, did a series of games set in the Roman Empire, um, where you have mar- basically if you win a battle, you get to pick markers out of a out of a bucket, and they give you additional bonuses down the line. So, for example, you get one marker allows you to cause a city to surrender. Another gives you a chance to upgrade your legions to uh, super-veteran status. So there's this whole other aspect to uh, warfare there that you normally wouldn't see.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. You might do you mind doing a more like, a specific deep dive into especially one of your ancient topics and how uh, like the information is, is applied within there?
2: Well, okay, we did a game series called Trajan after the Roman Emperor who went out and conquered um, uh, basically Mesopotamia in, in the second century AD. And the way it works is the game maps themselves are d- based on Ptolemaic maps. So they don't look like anything you'd see from a satellite. They look at it more or less as, as it would have been seen from the ancient it, ancient times. So you, you, you have to think in different terms. Okay. Now you don't know what the strength of enemy forces is. So if you pick an agent marker and play it, you can figure out what the enemy has. So you're not running into ambushes. Okay. And then you have another marker uh, representing uh, uh, basically veteran troop upgrades. And this represents the moral, morale impact of winning a battle so you can then upgrade your units. Okay, So there's a reason to fight battles other than just simply taking terrain. It's also to make your army better. And then you have another, which allows you to cause a city to defect to you. And this is, is important because otherwise you have to stop and besiege it. But what happens historically is if you won a battle, people would say, okay, these guys are the winners. We better open the gates or else and so these markers account for all this yeah, so sure. so you yeah. have to fight in order not simply to 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 gain uh, a victory against an enemy army but you're fighting the uh, the whole enemy uh, society behind it
0: interesting so going through your specific tiers are, are some geared for single player experiences and some are more geared towards multiplayer experiences
2: yes yeah. We, we've yeah
1: Yeah, no, in each of the lines there, there are uh, one-player games uh, as well as two or more. Uh, A lot of our solo games, especially once you get off those lower uh, introductory levels, uh, can be played by two players against the system. So, uh, for example, our uh, D-Day series uh, of uh, Invasion uh, games, Uh, in most of the five games of that series, it's easy to divide uh the landing area into two zones uh so like omaha beach one player controls the first division one player controls the 29th division and they're both going to be able to play against the system uh and and basically uh work they could do a little bit of cooperation but mostly it's how, how fast can they each move up the draws
0: what are some i guess the uh um the aspects of multiplayer games we have multiple people on each team that uh, a lot of newer players don't consider when they when they start uh playing these types of games
1: so at most of the introductory to to intermediate levels uh there's not a lot of that possibility for command and control uh levels uh because it's just simply not enough pieces or they're all basically at the same level uh in a lot of our operational games you know, the players cast in the role of a, a colonel or a general or the army but they're controlling things down two levels so uh an army commander might be controlling not only the corps but the individual divisions which isn't really true uh in, in actual uh, military ops uh but in our larger games there's enough pieces to where it really uh behooves the teams to have multiple players playing because then individual players are focused. So some of our uh, grand operational World War II games, uh, for instance, there's one coming up on uh, Operation Market Garden uh, called Over the Rhine. And it would not surprise me at all to see teams with one player controlling each of the the three uh, airborne uh, units that are landing, uh, plus another player for 30th core, And then perhaps the same uh, side on the Germans. Uh, And then it may be that they want to have one overall commander who's kind of coordinating things and handling the logistics and the combat support elements. So so that's where it starts to get to that level where there's enough going on in the game to where it actually makes more sense to have a team uh, with some levels to it, some tiers.
0: No, I, 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 I'm very interested in this because I've done a few myself, and I've noticed that the the whole command and control, and uh, especially from leader going to top down, is is very difficult to maintain as as it is in in real life. So that's really interesting. So how long do these games usually last? Like, what what's usually the? Uh, are are we talking about days, weeks? How how long?
1: Yeah. So the 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 over the top. Uh, from what I'm understanding from the project co- coordinator for that. Uh, is actually gonna be one of our shorter uh, games in this series. Uh, so i'm I'm anticipating probably uh, two days for that particular game. Uh, but it's it's covering a shorter time period than most of the other games. Uh, for obviously, for like Atlantic Wall, we're going from June sixth uh, all all the way to August first. So that's a lot of of time to cover for the Normandy campaign, and a lot going on there. But over the Rhine, pretty specific operation. Uh, in a pretty narrow area as well. Uh, But it's not as though you can't take some of the other games uh, for more of a classroom-oriented kind of situation, you know, and basically group those uh, units in their command structure. And and so an individual player in a classroom, uh, maybe they're only dealing with like five or 10 units. uh, And there are some, some fairly straightforward ways you can set up uh, how are the orders going to get passed down, and how much time perhaps elapses between when an order comes down from the commanding general to you know when does the colonel get uh, that that command from from them to what do they do with their brigade?
0: So, what are some I guess interesting ways you've seen the communication occur in some of the games that you've witnessed,
2: Joseph? Well, you mean in multiplayer games? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, one thing. One thing is is that you can uh, put restrictions on how people communicate with each other. So, for example, if you're doing like a tactical level game, uh, you could uh, have players in different rooms, and then you pass messages. And if, if you want to build it into the game system, you can have headquarters which have limited command control radii, and that restricts what what you can do. Uh, It's like one game we did was called um, uh, Cold War Hot Armor, and it covers uh, a number of scenarios, uh, mainly in Vietnam, uh, involving uh, various armored uh, forces. And you theoretically have a pretty effective, let's say, brigade group on the map. But the way the game works is that there's a random draw of command control. And so what happens is you can only maneuver certain units on the map within command radius. So this this kind of keeps things from getting out of control. You can play it actually with multiple, multiple players, each commanding, say, a different battalion, and then you have to coordinate among each other.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say you could even build in the different uh, doctrines and uh, communications abilities of two sides. Uh, so I'm working on a project right now that's 1943 uh, World War II Eastern Front. Uh, and one of the things I'm trying to build into the model is, is that problem that the uh, Germans had radios in, in all of their tanks. And the Russians did not, only the the company uh, commander. So about every five to 10 Russian tanks actually has communication with a higher level. And so working that modeling in of how uh, the Russians are kind of stock, uh, stuck with a pre-designed plan of action. And the Germans have incredible flexibility relative to that because they can keep communicating and because they had a doctrine of take initiative at the lowest level, where the Russians at least at
0: No, that's 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 really cool how you'll go with that um uh, incorporate doctrine, especially. So my next question is gonna be based on that. Considering the fact that the Marine Corps doctrine is maneuver warfare. How is there any particular games or that lean more towards uh, playing as maneuverous? Or is it possible with every game you have?
1: I'm sorry, you you cut out on my end.
0: Oh, apologize. Um, So anyway, so bringing into uh, the issue of doctrine, which is really cool that how how you all incorporate that. I'm just wondering, so for instance, with the Marine Corps doctrine being maneuver warfare, uh, how would a someone achieve a maneuverous victory in those games? Is it possible in all of them, or is it um, some lean more towards attrition just based off the uh, doctrine of the time? How How is that in, uh, incorporated?
2: Uh, I'm going to put Joseph on the spot for that Okay. One. Can you hear me okay? I, you cut out there for a bit. Yep, you're good to go. Okay. Well, one game we're doing right now is called Campaign for North Africa. It's, it's an upgrade of the old SPI game. Um, But we decided to make it playable. So the way it works is that each player gets a set of cards. Now, the critical thing is the allied cards are different from the Axis cards. The Axis cards emphasize more maneuver and combat. The allied cards uh, emphasize more logistics and administration. So the way, the way it works is that, generally speaking, for example, if you command the 21st Panzer Division, you'll probably get more mileage out of it because you can uh, maneuver it more and you can fight more battles. But the British, if they're maneuvering, uh, let's say, the, uh, the 7th Australian Division, they may not be able to uh, put in some fancy maneuvers, but they're more likely to be able to refit the units once they've taken losses. So you get the, the actual differences between the military doctrines, again, using cards. Now, this could be done in a Marine game where, okay, let's say you're emphasizing maneuver warfare. You, you get a set of maneuver cards. But if you're emphasizing firepower, you get a set of attrition cards. Or if you want to show the impact of logistics, you have more logistics cards, let's say more supply or transport or maintenance cards. So this way, the player can actually see it in their hand and understand what the differences are, as opposed to having a huge, big, thick rules book.
0: No, that's that's awesome. The, the the depth you go into. That's really cool. How you use you use cards to uh, to show that. So my next question is, uh, especially with with wargaming, it's important to keep it within the realm of the physically possible, also within uh, how how assets were used in their time period. And I know it, there's a big issue in wargaming where like you can find essentially quote unquote game the system or gaming the system by using an aspect that's unhistorical, but to to get better results. How do you do uh, uh, implement ways to to prevent that in your wargaming?
2: Well, some of it gets back to the cards because it keeps within historical uh, parameters, and some of it's victory conditions. So uh, you you have to keep things sort of flowing towards what the original goals were. But we don't want to totally get rid of innovation or unconventional tactics. So that's that, that's always a possibility too.
1: And it's really across the entire sequence of play and, and other uh, elements that come into uh, the rules or the components. Um, because you can you can demonstrate differences in doctrine by uh, just the the quantitative ratings uh, for how fast units can move, uh, whether they have uh, additional move uh, for exploitation. you know do they have a doctrine of exploitation and deep penetration? uh, versus fanning out and, and, uh, holding ground, uh, who holds ground better, uh, is an interesting, uh, thing I'm dealing with, again, with that 1943, uh, situation, uh, and, yeah, so the, the Germans, uh, understood that the Russians wanted to move forward and dig in, because they needed to stop, dig in, and wait for the next order, and the Germans understood if they didn't counterattack right away, the Russians were probably going to hold whatever ground they took, so there's different ways to to factor that in. In that uh, there's ways to uh, enhance the attack strength or the defense strength under certain conditions. Uh, in, you know, beyond just uh, what terrain they're sitting on or attacking into, uh, but how their doctrine uh, conforms to what they'll do. Uh, you know, with a successful attack, uh, with an unsuccessful attack, uh, what, what does their doctrine say about that? So we, we get back to this whole Marines against uh, you know, the red uh, you know, op four, and we have to start looking at, well, what is the op4s doctrine, uh, and how is that going to interact with ours? Uh, why, why are the Chinese spending so much time currently on developing their NCOs? Uh, they've recognized that that's a, a weakness in their organization. Uh, they're watching the Russians get pounded on that issue uh, currently. And so it's clear they're spending some preparatory uh, time uh, trying to build up that NCO initiative. Uh, I don't think they're going to get it <laughs> in the next few years because it, it takes generational uh, time periods to develop that because it, it's going against their uh, social cultural grain. Uh, and so th- it's going to take a lot of work to develop initiative uh, within the Chinese uh, military, whereas when you look at the American military, uh, we've been, been uh, focusing on initiative from the beginning of our military efforts 200 years ago. So it, it's normal for us to understand uh, at every level, but you know, why are we trying to to take initiative? What, why do we take personal responsibility for? Let's get the job done, uh, or are we having the mindset of no? We have to wait for the the captain or the general to tell us what to do because we don't want to make a mistake.
0: No, yeah, that's 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 incredibly awesome. I'm I'm, I'm glad uh, you, you uh, appreciate the depth. So. Our audience is primary uh, Marines of the greater Marine Corps families. So I'm going to give each of you a chance to uh, argue for your case for uh, which particular game in whichever uh, series you wish you most highly recommend uh, for uh, our our listeners and Marines in general.
1: (laughs) Well, what's your favorite there, Joseph, before I identify one at each level?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at at the, um, that's what you say, call it operational level we did a game called foreign legion solitary foreign legion paratrooper solitary Mm -hmm. and basically you're in command of a foreign legion paratrooper regiment and you're given various missions around the world and what you do then is you put together a task force usually battalion to quasi regimental size and then you go to a, a, a specific tactical map to execute the mission and some of them are based on real world missions so you may parachute into timbuktu or you may conduct counterinsurgency in uh, in uh, Mogadishu, or whatever. Uh, but it it gets you to thinking in the big picture terms down to little picture terms. Then down at the uh, operation at the tactical to operational level, um, the Kasan game is actually very good. It's a, another solitaire game. It's a mini game, and you're defending the fire base in 1968 in northern uh, South Vietnam and you have various cards representing your courses of action so each one will give you a different set of of uh, circumstances so for example you can pick a card that will allow you to do uh ground sweeps other cards that will allow you to do a build up another card that will allow you to call in a uh, relief force uh from the uh, first Cav division and then the enemy is uh is run by another set of cards, which will allow them to make various kinds of attacks or withdrawals. So it gives you a good idea of what it's like to hold a besieged fire base and to have all sorts of firepower that backs you up. So very, very, very interesting little game.
1: All right. So Joseph just took one of mine. Uh, Kaysan, definitely the the one I would pick out of the mini games uh, for the Marines. At the, the folio uh, level uh there are three good games in that series that uh happen to be from the uh Korean War. Uh Nakdong Bulge uh features the Marines kind of saving the day there at the Pusan perimeter. Uh then we see them again at Inchon with the landings and the advance to Seoul. Uh and then of course the the famous uh Choson uh, River uh, Reservoir uh set is, is in uh, that folio group. Um the next one up from that, I actually going to skip over the magazines to to the, the basic uh, box games uh, and, and hit again on the D-Day series. So uh, four out of the five in that series are Pacific Island invasions, uh, Tarawa, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, uh, and Saipan. Uh, I think those are all excellent, detailed uh, studies of the invasions at each site. Obviously, they feature Marines at every point. Uh, and, you know, your units of maneuver are basically platoons. Uh, you're generally handling uh, one to two divisions worth of troops. Uh, it, it's an interesting diceless system. Uh, everything that that comes up in the game uh, comes up as a card play uh, in terms of fire support and advance and combat. Uh, so it's, it's a really excellent and popular series. And, and uh, let's see at the highest level most complex stuff oh gosh i'm trying to think most of those are are kind of at the level where the marines are are one unit uh in a much larger strategic situation uh so i I start thinking about some of our grand strategic uh things uh you know where uh, we had a, a game called war in the pacific that that covered the entire pacific theater at a Capital ship and uh, battalion level, so that obviously had had a lot of uh, marine and naval action in it. Uh, but it's it's huge. It, it's definitely a multiplayer, multi-day kind of, of uh, game. So, some suggestions.
0: Uh, did any future projects or endeavors that you wish to uh, you know give our audience a, a peek into?
2: Well, we're working on Red Dragon, Green Crescent, and there's a very strong amphibious element in there. And I included units for different forces that are on the drawing board or just coming online, like you have Marine littoral regiments, which have sort of advanced abilities to conduct amphibious operations, and you have expeditionary sea bases. You have all sorts of you know units you can bring in optionally uh, to experiment how these will uh, function within a very grand strategic situation.
1: I would say another game that's coming up in the magazine is uh, Narvik. Uh, Not necessarily a a Marine situation, but definitely uh, it's an interesting situation uh, early in World War II in Norway uh, with the Germans uh, invading uh, Norway and then the Allies counter-invading at the same location. So that's very unusual in terms of military history that you have an invasion and a counter-invasion on top of it. Uh, so it's an interesting study, uh, probably one of Miranda's best little gems here in the recent past. Uh, because we have all the the problems of uh, several allied you know forces trying to uh, coordinate themselves. Uh, he's got a nice mechanic where they each operate separately, and it's difficult to necessarily coordinate them. Where the the Germans kind of come in; they're the smaller force, but uh, they. Uh, are well-coordinated from from the get-go.
2: And one of the interesting things about the game is that a major objective are the various wireless stations around the map, because if you grab a wireless station, you can now have enhanced command control. So there's that aspect of it. Plus, upfront leadership gives you a little extra command control, too.
1: Yeah, I was going to say another game that's coming up uh, for next year is uh, Operation Sea Lion, which is probably the most interesting hypothetical uh, amphibious assault that we talk about for World War II. Uh, So that was published once uh, in World at War. We're updating and uh, putting it in a box uh, with some extra features. Uh, So there again, we we get to see uh, both the Germans trying to coordinate their naval air and ground forces to get uh, across the English Channel, and uh, we get to see the Royal Navy and Air Force and uh, troops uh, try to repel that invasion.
0: Well, that's awesome. I look forward to uh, to, to seeing how those uh, turn out. Uh, is there any place where our audience can find you, like social media-wise? Obviously, you have your, your magazines.
1: Right. They can always find us at decisiongames.com. Uh, We do also uh, a uh, article series in the Gazette uh, that uh, covers wargaming at a basic level. Uh, There's all kinds of information there on how to reach us. There's uh, special offers available if they go through that particular landing page, uh, just for Marines.
0: All right, thank you. And then so the final question, uh, and to make this harder, you cannot refer to a game uh, that you produce. Uh, You've had a long day at work, wargaming. You're coming home. You pour yourself a glass of bourbon. What wargaming – what specific wargame are you going to play? What's your favorite wargame?
2: Well, outside of decision games. (laughs) (laughs) When do we have have? (laughs) have time for that? (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, uh, the original Avenal Hill Dune – it's a multiplayer game set in the world of Frank Herbert's Dune, but very fascinating in terms of having different factions with different strategies and different capabilities. And of course the best part is being able to ride sandworms. So I always recommend that.
1: It's tough for me because I'm kind of on the leading edge of having to look at things. So uh, I'm, I'm gonna go a little sideways and say, actually my favorite thing to do uh, is to come home and look at one of the games that's been submitted to us. And they've often been submitted to multiple companies, so there's kind of a rush to, to review it and make a decision about whether we're going to take it on or not. Uh, so I'm fascinated by just looking at outside uh, designers, uh, you know, often first attempts at designing games and seeing what they've incorporated and what kind of innovations uh, they've thought of that we have yet to think of.
0: That, that's, a, that's a pretty unique answer. I think that's the first time we've had someone in this World of Wargaming series come up with I, I, my favorite games are the ones that have even been released yet. That's that's pretty cool that yeah, you get access to that. Well, Joseph and Doc, thank you again so much for coming on. Um, and to all of our listeners out there, uh, thank you for tuning to World of Wargaming. We hope to uh, see and uh, hear from you all again. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Trudy but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Andy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official standards of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.